This morning, uh, we are continuing on in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we're looking primarily at Mark chapter 9, verses, 20, verses 9 through 29. But we're actually going to look at uh, the verses preceding that as well. So the first half of Mark's Gospel, the first eight chapters, dealt primarily with the question, who is Jesus? And then this transition takes place that we looked at a couple weeks ago, where now things turn and Jesus starts focusing on his mission, why he came, what he came to do, uh, which was to die, and then what it means to follow him in light of that or to be a disciple. And so what this passage is going to do for us is it's going to highlight for us and acknowledge the reality that much of life is lived in a dark valley where there is difficulty, where there is suffering, but it's also going to do something else for us. It's going to give us hope that we can hang on to no matter where we might find ourselves. So last week, Daniel preached on Mark 9 verses 1 through 8. And as I said, we're going to look primarily at verses 9 through 29, but because we're going to be referring back to the transfiguration event, um, for context, we're going to go ahead and read all of 9, 1 through 29. So if you would, give your attention to the hearing of God's word. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. 
And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that sometimes there are things that come into our lives, situations and circumstances that make us question and doubt whether you're really present whether you're really involved, whether you care. We experience suffering and we see others around who seem to be carefree. We wonder, are you really at work? And so we need to come into your presence to be reminded of what is true and what is real. Our souls are thirsty. Whether we recognize it or not, We long for you because we were made for you. And so we ask that as we gather together in your presence, that you would show us your power and your glory, that you would remind us of your steadfast love. For those of us who are wondering if maybe, maybe your compassion has has stopped. Maybe you've forgotten to be gracious. Maybe your mercy doesn't extend to us. Maybe your steadfast love has come to an end Would you assure us that your steadfast love endures forever, that your mercies are new to us every morning, including this morning? Would you help us to run to Jesus that our souls might be satisfied in him? We pray this in his name. Amen. So we all know that there are different seasons in life that we go through, different stages. And some of you might be in one of those sunny, happy, joyful, carefree seasons and I'm so thankful for that. And you should enjoy that and relish that. Uh, but some of you I know from, from talking to you are in a more difficult season. Life has been hard. Many of you are discouraged by the division and the conflict and the polarization taking place in our nation that makes its way into your friendships and into your family and sometimes even into the church Many of you have reached an age, maybe it's middle age, where you look around and you realize that the script of your life hasn't played out the way that you had written it, the way that you thought things would go. And you've found yourself becoming discouraged, discontent with aspects of how life is going. For some of you, you're feeling darkness and depression. And some of you are just worn out, exhausted by stress and anxiety And you wonder if you've got enough gas left in the tank to make it through another school year, to make it through another week of work, to make it through however however many more months or years you have of living in your body, of maintaining a home, of raising children, of maybe investing in a marriage. 
you wonder, am I going to make it? Is there hope? And the disciples in this passage were feeling somewhat deflated and they were in need of encouragement. And Jesus does something for them and for us that's intended to give us hope and encouragement to follow him. Maybe some of us for the first time or others of us to continue to follow him. Some of you are in a dark valley and you need encouragement. And others of you maybe feel like you're on top of a mountain and life is great, but you may be about to descend into a dark valley, maybe one that you don't even see coming. And Jesus cares enough about you that he wants to prepare you for that ahead of time. So six days earlier, Peter had identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who was coming to bring deliverance. And then immediately Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, that he is going to suffer, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to be killed. And then he tells them to follow him and to do the same. That the only way to true life was through suffering and giving up their attempts to achieve their own happiness and their own success. And so Jesus has just recently overturned his followers' entire conception of what this kingdom that he was bringing was like and how it comes. That it doesn't come through political power. It doesn't come through hanging on to and protecting our own rights and interests. And for many of us, that goes against all of our natural inclinations, against all of the ways that we tend to think about and approach life. So what would encourage us to follow Jesus in this kingdom agenda that is very different from how we naturally might like to pursue life? Well, in verse 1, Jesus said that some of them would see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They would get a glimpse of power that's usually hidden. Jesus knew that they needed and we need a view from the peak in order to prepare us for the valley. We need to cling to a vision of King Jesus in all of his glory. See, the reality is that the valley often discourages us. It often brings us face-to-face with our own desperate situation, with our own weakness and helplessness, and it promises challenge and difficulty and suffering And that is just what it often looks like to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. Discipleship, following Jesus, often takes place in dark valleys. And to make it in the valley, we need a view of the peak. We need to cling to a vision of the exalted king. So, verse 2, six days later, Jesus gave three of his closest companions just such a vision. So the transfiguration that was unpacked for us last week. If you missed that sermon, you can go back and listen to the podcast and and hear this unpacked in a lot more detail. But the transfiguration took place for the benefit of the disciples. Verse two says Jesus was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah, verse four, appeared to them. And in verse seven, the voice from the cloud speaks to them. So Jesus knew that they and we need to see something. So what is it that we need to see about Jesus and who he is? Verses two and three, Jesus is literally transformed before them. His clothes are radiant, white like lightning. And the disciples see that he is more powerful than they ever imagined. 
What we need to see is a glimpse of Jesus in his glory so that we can be convinced that Jesus is more than just a teacher, that he's actually divine. He's actually God. Verse four, Moses and Elijah appear talking with Jesus. As we heard last week, they were, they were great figures from the Old Testament. Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets and Jesus comes to fulfill both of them. And God in verse seven speaks out of a cloud and throughout the Old Testament, a cloud represents God's special presence with his people. When God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus, he called Moses and some leaders up on a Mount Sinai and appeared to them, spoke to them out of a cloud. And when Moses came down the mountain, because he'd been in God's presence, he was glowing, he was radiant, and the people were afraid of him. Here, Jesus is glowing, but he's not reflecting God's glory like the, like the moon reflects the sun. Jesus himself is the sun. The light is radiating from him because he himself is God. And Peter, not knowing what to think of all this, says, let's set up three tents, three shelters, three tabernacles. Tabernacles or tents were places where, where God met with his people, where God's special presence came to dwell. But the reality is that now that Jesus is here, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. So he's the one that gives us access into God's presence. John, who was here on the mountain, one of the three disciples, would later write, in his gospel, that the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God's voice speaks from the cloud. And what does he say? He says, this, talking about Jesus, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In the presence of Moses and Elijah God identifies Jesus and says, this is my son, listen to him. In verse eight, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. He's the only one left. God is saying, focus on him. Okay, so what do we need to see and to hear and to remember from the peak? God says, this is my beloved son. And one question for you is do you know, do you believe that God says the same thing about you? Do you know that God loves you in the same way? If you are a Christian or if you were to become a Christian, because you are connected to Jesus through faith, God looks at you in the very same way. And God says the very same thing about you, which means that, you should start every day with the awareness, saying to yourself, I am a daughter of the king. I'm a son of the king. I am deeply, deeply loved. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to who he says he is and what he says it means to follow him? Are you listening to what he says it means to follow him with how we use our money, our sexuality, other aspects of our lives? The reality is that 
Sometimes we don't really want to listen to Jesus because our highest priority is to do what we think will make us most comfortable, most satisfied. And we're not really sure that Jesus is leading in that direction. Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus. Sometimes following Jesus is an experience of failure. The reality is that we continue to sin. I continue to sin. And we continue to suffer. And oftentimes it doesn't seem like the kingdom that Jesus talks about is growing. Often what we see most clearly in the forefront of our vision is those around us struggling. Maybe those in our family, maybe ourselves. We see people suffering. We see things falling apart all around us and it can actually make us feel pretty hopeless. But the transfiguration is intended to give us a glimpse of Jesus as he really is. So where do we need this vision of Jesus? We need it in the valley below. If you look at verse 9, Mark tells us that they were coming down the mountain. They're coming down the mountain because life isn't lived on the mountain, but in the valley below. The Christian life actually isn't one big mountaintop experience. And there's a great temptation to want to stay on the mountain. Peter felt that. If you look at verse 5, Peter says, hey, it's good to be here. There's glory in the air. I think this looks like a good campsite. Let's pitch some tents with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And it seems that what Peter really wants is fulfillment now. Why can't we just skip that whole cross thing that you were talking about, Jesus? And if you've ever been on top of a high peak and you've seen the amazing views and smelled the crisp air, you know that there is a a temptation to want to just stay and linger for as long as you can. But you also know that the only thing up there is rocks and moss and marmots. And we're not marmots, so we don't get to live up there. We've got to come down. And Jesus says as they're coming down, verse 9, Don't talk about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so they start questioning what he means by that. What is this rising from the dead? And maybe the real question is, what do death and resurrection have to do with the Son of Man coming in power and glory? Jesus, why do you have this fixation on death? Verse 11, he says, why do the scribes, they say, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And they know that the Old Testament prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, predicted that Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, would come before the Messiah. And so if the end is near, Jesus, then where is Elijah, whom all the prophets said would come first to restore all things? And, and if Elijah is coming first to restore all things, then then why is this suffering necessary? Can't we just get on to the glory part? Jesus says in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus tells them, verse 13, that Elijah actually has come and he's referring to John the Baptist. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist was Elijah coming. And They, the people, did to him whatever they pleased. And what did they do? They rejected and killed him. So the forerunner, the one who would come first before the Messiah, has already come. And he's been rejected and killed. And the same thing is going to happen of the Messiah. 
So Jesus enters glory only through suffering. And so they must go to the valley. So what, what does life look like in the valley? What do we encounter there? We encounter trials. As soon as they come down the mountain, they meet this demon-possessed boy. And what this is going to do is it's going to help them and help us see and experience and hopefully believe the relevance of Jesus. Because sometimes we're inclined, just like many of the people back then, to think of Jesus as being a good teacher, but simply a good teacher, a good example. And maybe you have a difficult time seeing how Jesus really makes a difference in the real aspects of your day-to-day life, in the world where you actually live. The disciples don't understand why Jesus has to die. They're down there. The other disciples are down there in the valley and they're trying to exercise a demon and they're doing it without praying. They're not seeing their own need for dependence on God and they're acting like they can address the challenges of life on their own, that they can fix the situation on their own. But what is the nature of this boy's condition? The demon is making him deaf and mute. It literally is attempting to throw him into fire and into water. It's actually seeking to destroy him. And so the boy is completely helpless. And so the demon-possessed boy gives us a very stark picture of the greatness of sin and evil that exists in our world and that actually exists in us as well. And it shows us why Jesus had to come and die. Because we humans are powerless to save ourselves, to fix our situation. We're powerless to save ourselves from the power of sin and Satan that seeks to destroy us. And so salvation has to come to us from the outside. The father here is helpless. You can almost sense his desperation. It's palpable. And maybe you've had a similar experience of desperation as you have watched maybe your own children or loved ones struggle. And you wish that you could help them, but they've got things that you can't fix. You can't take away their pain. You can't take away their depression. You can't take away their loneliness. And you watch as you see them struggle to find a job or to find love. You watch as they experience the pain of broken relationships and you can't make them trust Jesus. And some of you are in the situation where you are longing for your children, maybe your grown children, to follow Jesus, to trust him, or to come back to him. And it's just not in your power to change their hearts. And it's breaking yours. And it can make you feel helpless and hopeless. In the valley, we encounter trials, but we also encounter tests of faith. The father of this demon-possessed boy wasn't sure that Jesus actually could do anything about the problem. He says in verse 22, if you can do anything. Where is it in your own life that you are struggling to believe that Jesus really has the power to help your situation or that Jesus 
really is even willing to engage or that he is at work in your situation? Where are you feeling helpless or hopeless? What we need to see is the compassion of Jesus toward people in a desperate situation like our own. Verse 22, the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus challenges the father and the father says, verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. What's he saying? I believe I have faith, but it is frail and I'm full of doubts. And so what we need to be encouraged by is the reality that it is not the quality or the strength of our faith that makes the difference, but it's the object of our faith. If we focus on the quality of our faith, thinking God will only answer my prayers if I believe well enough, if I believe hard enough, then what we actually do is start having faith in our faith instead of having faith in Jesus. Our focus becomes inward rather than looking to Jesus and his sufficiency. So what we see is that Jesus casts out the demon. The demon thrashes the boy so that he looks dead. Everybody thinks that he must be dead. But Jesus, in verse 27, lifted him up and he arose. And that is resurrection language. It's resurrection language that alludes to the fact that in order for Jesus to heal this boy and in order for Jesus to heal us, Jesus is ultimately himself going to have to die and be raised. The boy ultimately requires Jesus' death and resurrection. And so does your healing. And so does my healing. So does the healing of your broken body and your broken marriage and ultimately your broken soul because we can't fix ourselves. Sometimes the valley is really dark, isn't it? Sometimes sadness comes over us like a canopy of trees. Sometimes, maybe if you're like me, you find yourself crying and you don't even know why. The tears just start flowing. The valley can bring a depression that no positive thinking can fix. The darkness just snuffs it out. Sin and Satan seek to destroy us in the valley. They distort us. And we feel powerless. And some of you, I know, have experienced desperately wicked things. Things that maybe you don't ever talk about with anybody. And I would encourage you to talk to somebody about some of those things. There are people here that are safe, that you can trust, who would be willing and would love to talk to you about those things. But some of you have things that you never talk about. Things that maybe you've done or things that have happened to you and you've got scars, real scars. And trying to forget our past won't help. It's like trying to hold six basketballs underwater in a swimming pool at the same time. They'll just pop back up. And maybe we think that if we can just find or create a safe place away from the demons and the bad things, if we can just control our environment, then things will be okay. But Jesus says we have to go down the mountain with him. You see, if Jesus doesn't leave the mountain, we're not safe. If Jesus doesn't go into the valley and defeat the demons, then we don't have any hope. Jesus says the only way for true restoration to ever happen 
is for him to go into the dark valley and storm the gates of hell and break the chains of sin that bind us and our hearts so that he can set us free. And the only way for that to happen is for him to go to the cross. So our desperation, our sickness, our sadness, our depression should show us just how relevant Jesus' death is. He has to die. It's an absolute necessity. Our affliction is too great and we can't fix it. We're powerless. But here's the the good news, the glorious news, that Jesus' glory shines brightest against the backdrop of our desperation, of our need, of our inability. And so our task is simply to gaze up at him and trust in his power. So have you come to the realization that you are actually helpless? Have you seen your own inability? And are you willing to turn to Jesus and trust him as the one who can help you? Are you looking at Jesus? Or are you trying to change, to grow on your own, in your own strength, apart from Jesus? The reality is that we change through seeing more of Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And John, who was with Jesus up on the mountain, writes in his book, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So if our greatest need is to see Jesus, if our greatest need when we're in the valley is to cling to a vision of the exalted king, where do we go to see Jesus? Well, Peter, who was one of the three followers up on the mountain, writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Can you imagine I mean, what an experience. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there and see Jesus on the mountain? I mean, what a memory to hold on to. I mean, if only we could see Jesus in his glory like that. If only we got to be there. If only we had that reminder of what is real. If we could have been there and seen Jesus in all his splendor, I mean, that certainly would be an experience that would be sufficient for whatever dark valleys that we may be facing or will face. If we just could have an experience. But listen to Peter's next words, which are actually some of the most amazing in the Bible. Peter has just said, we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. We saw Jesus in his glory. We heard God audibly speak from a cloud. And he continues. 
And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Something more sure. What Peter is saying is that the Bible that we hold in our hands, that we can read whenever we want to, is actually a more sure testimony than what Peter actually had. Peter's saying, we have something more sure when we view the Bible as simply instructions for everyday living, then we have to create our own experiences to get us pumped up. But we can actually go to the mountaintop and see Jesus every time we open our Bible. And so the reason, the reason that you should listen to sermons is to see more of Jesus. The reason that you should read your Bible is to see more of Jesus and be changed. It's the reason to be involved in a small group and study the Bible with other people. And so the question is, are you gazing at Jesus in his word? Are you seeing and resting in his power? The reason that you should make being here for our worship together each week a priority is because this is where Jesus promises his presence. This is where he promises to meet you, to nourish you through his word and at his table. That's why we do this. It's where you experience the love of God that will give you hope in the dark valley. I appreciate the way that Pastor Tim Keller says it in his book, Jesus the King. He says, you must have access through worship to the very presence of God. You have to see clearly in your mind what God has done and is doing through Jesus. You have to experience foretastes of that embrace God is going to give you someday. You need to actually sense what you know of God's love. It's one thing to know that the glorious creator God loves you, cares for you, holds you, but it's another thing to sense it, to experience it. Whatever life brings you, you will need those foretastes to nourish and strengthen you. The Italian Renaissance painter Raphael's last painting, which was unfinished, was titled The Transfiguration. And the subject is this passage that we are looking at. And at the top of this pa- painting is Jesus, and he's hovering at the top of a mountain, and he's, he's glowing, he's bright, he's blazing in light. And Moses and Elijah are at his side, and Peter and James and John are lying on the ground, covering their eyes because the radiance is so bright. But then down below in the foreground, Raphael has painted this, this second scene taking place in the dark valley. And there's a crowd that's gathered and you can see the demon-possessed boy. And he's obviously, he's got wild eyes. His mouth is gaping wide open. He's being thrashed around. And the father is desperately, desperately trying to help his son. And some of the disciples are there and they're, they're trying to help. They're trying to cast out the demon and this crowd is in a frenzy. But then Raphael has painted these other two disciples who are standing there and they're pointing toward the scene that's taking place on the mountaintop. They're pointing at Jesus as if to say, look, he is reigning and ruling right now. Even though we are down here and we are experiencing this helpless, hopeless situation that we can't fix, Jesus is present and he's reigning and ruling right now. And that, friends, is what we need to be 
reminded of. That's what we need to remind one another of. That is what we gather together each week to be reminded of, that Jesus is reigning and ruling right now, even as we continue in the dark valley. So we'll close with these words that will be our benediction a little bit later. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let me pray for us. God, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would awaken and enlighten our hearts so that we can see Jesus as he really is. Help us to see him as both beautiful and believable and powerful and trustworthy. Help us to run to him for security, for hope, for assurance, even and especially in the darkness of the valley, believing that because of his death and resurrection, he will lead us through and bring us home. Amen.